Welcome to Urbanism Vancouver, a podcast that looks at how we can make Vancouver a better urban experience. Together, we'll dive into the workings of our built environment and discuss how we can get involved in our community. Hi, I'm your host, Helen Loy. With every episode, I hope to share with you some insights from my industry experience and explore how we can make Vancouver a more livable and affordable place. I hope that you'll learn a little and perhaps be inspired to be more involved in impacting positive change. Before we get started today, we want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded and produced on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and recognize the enduring connection they have to this land. We strive to have our conversations contribute towards reconciliation and work towards sustainability and equity for all the custodians of the lands. One common concern about adding density is the impact on public systems. This can include a variety of things like pipes in the ground that provide water and power to our buildings, to parks and public spaces, as well as roads, public transit, and traffic management. Of course, with new homes come new people, who bring additional pressures on these systems and services. So, how do we reconcile our need to add housing while balancing the impact to our public infrastructure? Today, I'm continuing the conversation with Dennis Agar, He is an urban planner with a wealth of experience on transit systems. For this episode, I wanted to focus on the relationship between housing and public transportation, as well as the wider topic of infrastructure. I started by asking whether transit authorities consider density when they explore if and where new services are needed. Yes, density definitely does play a role. It's interesting because it really differs between the bus network and the rail network, I find like the bus network doesn't have as much scrutiny from politicians about how it it's rolled out and it grows. Usually in the big funding plan, it'll say 20% more bus service. And then the planners at TransLink can, can really kind of go in and look at density and look at where demand is. And so so I should say, yeah, that the de- I would say demand plays more of a role than density just in the sense that there's often, you know, aside from the two years in the worst years of COVID, there's way more demand than there are buses in the region. And so usually TransLink can go a long way towards expanding by just putting more buses where there's overcrowding and where there are pass ups, which are like when people are left behind by full buses, which happens so much in this region. And so that's the bus network. The rail network is always political. It always ends up being political where the lines go. And you can look at the Millennium Line, Canada Line, Evergreen Extension, all these projects where it ends up being, you know, mayors competing for rail expansion. The provincial government gets involved, like where are the swing seats, those kinds of things. And so that really plays a big role in in rail expansion, more so than I would say density. Hmm, Interesting. I mean, the example that I always kind of come back to is Scott Road. In, yeah, uh, which is on the border thinking, of Delta yeah. and, and Surrey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't 
no one's ever talking about Scott Road in terms of rapid transit, like SkyTrain or something like that. Right. Subsequent mayors of the city of Surrey have talked about 104, thing King George and Fraser Highway. And, you know, it went from those three corridors to now just one on Fraser Highway. But Scott Road is, you know, the 319, the bus that serves Scott Road, is the busiest bus south of the Fraser. And I think it's maybe like number four or number five in the entire region. Wow. Um, there's so much transit demand on Scott Road. There's so much density. And it's just never on anyone's lips in terms of of rapid transit expansion. So so it's not it's not a scientific like density here equals right. train coming soon. It's more like <laughs> you feed it into a machine of like the provincial legislature and the mayor's council and all the city councils and and then it comes out the other end and it looks totally different. <laughs> oh man. Gosh. I have a few follow-up questions. One is why do you think that there is such a difference in the approach for the bus network versus the rail network? And then secondly, housing is also very politicized, right? When you think about the recent initiatives of all this added, all these policies for added density, it was quite a shift in kind of the political climate that allowed us to kind of even have these discussions. And so how can we kind of work some synergies maybe in in the political advocacy to make sure that we are getting the transit that we need along with new housing because those go so well together? Yeah, well, okay, I'll tackle your first question first. Okay. Why doesn't the bus network get as much political scrutiny as the rail network? I think it's just really not on the radar of a lot of local politicians. You know, a lot of local politicians don't ride the bus and they don't know many people who do. And they kind of leave it in TransLink's hands. You know, they just kind of assume that it's it's happening and that if they don't get any complaints, then it's good to go. And so I kind of highlighted the good part of that, which is that you know, it's translate can be more responsive to where the ridership demand really is without as much political interference. But the flip side, of course, with any democratic institution, like if you don't have elected officials scrutinizing this thing, then there's also potentially big gaps that could form. And I think that really ties into your second question. I think for all forms of transit, uh, power comes from individual people, right? Like citizens, right. aside people that can buy votes and those kinds of things. That's not us. We can organize, <laughs> right? Like we can bring yes. people together. We can mount campaigns. We can uh, demonstrate the numbers in this region, how many people actually ride transit. And the numbers in this region are flabbergasting compared to other regions in North America. Like we have three times as many bus riders as Seattle does. And we're oh, a smaller region, right? What about like, Toronto? Do you know? Toronto, the number one in terms of bus usage is New York. And then I think it's Toronto, then Montreal, then us. So oh, we're wow. above Los Angeles. We're above Chicago. It's it's really wild out here. I always talk about the 49 to anyone that'll listen to me. It's yes. the third busiest bus route in our region. Yeah. And it moves. It, so it's not even our number one. That route alone moves twice as many people as Via Rail Canada coast to coast. Wow. So like on that, on that metric, the 49 is a critical piece of national infrastructure. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so all of this to say that I think the rollout of the bus network could use more involvement from grassroots individuals, talking to city councilors, talking to mayors, talking to MLAs, generally just making it known that buses have problems and that there aren't enough bus lanes 
And I think the same goes for rail expansion too. Like it's it's harder because there the the dollar figures are so much bigger and and there are mayors that are paying attention and might have their own kind of incentives for like where the new SkyTrain should go, but but riders should have a bigger say in that. And I think that's really the solution to a lot of this stuff is like an organized voice for riders. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking of when you talk about the 49, like I took the 49 whenever I went to UBC. And I remember just thinking like, if my parents had just let me live on campus, I wouldn't have to be on this two hour commute, right? And so (laughs) I imagine that where housing is like a key part of the demand of transit, because a lot of these key routes are probably people coming in from Surrey, from Delta, from Richmond, having to go to UBC, having to go to downtown for their work. And again, it speaks to the benefits and synergies of allowing more housing density in some of these areas on your map that don't have that much density so that I would assume that would also alleviate some of the, some of the, uh, or actually increase the efficiencies, I guess, of some of how our public transportation works. It would shorten trip lengths, right? Like all of a sudden, instead of commuting all the way from Delta to UBC, you know, if there was more housing in Dunbar, then that person would still be going from Dunbar to UBC, but, uh, and, and so they would still be on the transit system, but their trip would be a whole lot shorter. And they might be more transit dependent for all their other trips. Like if they need to go to the grocery store or the rec center, they would be taking other short trips. This is the exponential thing that I, I, I even today have a hard time elaborating on. But like when you put more things in places, it's not just like straight line, like add this many homes and this many stores and then ridership will go up like a linear amount. It, it totally just changes the places that people go from and to. Like, this is the exciting bit. You know, if you imagine, like, even think about those stores on Canby around 7th and 8th, like a Best Buy. Like, how handy is it to have that big box Best Buy and the big box Canadian Tire in the urban core? Like, kind of like not great urbanism, but the fact that those are there make it so much easier to live a For walkable sure. urban lifestyle. Every person that you add in a built-up area, it allows for more commerce, more retail, and that makes it even more livable in that area. And it just creates this positive feedback loop that freeways have had access to. The positive feedback loop has been happening for freeways for 60 years. If we could just get at some of that positive feedback loop action, that's some of that exponential kind of the benefits of a network. The key barriers to improving public transportation are very similar to challenges to building better communities. There is little focus on things that can benefit a quiet majority, like buses, because these groups are not able to easily advocate for their needs. They may also have less access to politicians, and these policy decision makers often do not live and experience the struggles of the day-to-day challenges due to poor infrastructure like our public buses. As a result, the topics that are politicized aren't always the full picture, meaning that our policy decisions often overlook large portions of our built environment and also the people within them. As a result, we're leaving a lot of opportunities on the table. For example, the benefits are exponential when we add lots of housing near lots of public transportation. Like I always try and bring it back to this network effect, like the idea that 
if you were the first person on a social media network, like if you had the first MySpace account back <laughs> in the aughts, you know, yeah. Yeah. what good did it do you? There was no one else there. Like, cool, I can make a little page for myself and put all the music I like, but no one's going to see it. But that second person, oh, wow, like now I can share that with that, that other person. That's cool. That'll get boring after a while. But if 500 of your, of your friends are on MySpace, then all of a sudden all these things are possible and it becomes the dominant way that people communicate for an entire generation. And that's that's the nonlinear thing. Like it just, you have to get kind of to a tipping point. There are so many places that we could put people that would help lead to that tipping point that like maybe it would justify having a grocery store at the corner of like, I don't know, King Edward and, and Granville or something. Can you imagine yeah. that? Like. Yeah. Once you have enough people there, it makes that neighborhood more walkable, less reasons to get into a car. It just goes on and on and on. Last time we met, you had like given this description of what I think you sort of just summed up there, but this idea of why Tawasin is not a great spot for this kind of like connectivity. Mm. And so is there like an official term that you use for what you describe that as? Because again, I think yeah. that applies both in transportation and in neighborhoods, building out of neighborhoods, building out of housing, this idea that you want to place it in areas where it has a lot of directions to go, I guess. The term is centrality. And I pull it straight from like a journal article by Robert Cervero and a few other people. And one of the things that they looked at was like what gets people out of their car, like what generates car trips. I might be butchering this, but I'm pretty sure like the top thing, it wasn't density or freeways or Skytrain or whatever. It was centrality. It's like, how close are you to the center of the region? It's just like proximity. Like, because if you if you think about a place like, let's use like Burke Mountain and Coquitlam or Tawasin's the same, like your house is, picture your house in Burke Mountain and then you draw a circle around it, let's say a two kilometer circle, a lot of the stuff in that circle is just going to be mountains and trees and bears um, right. because you're right up against the edge. Whereas if you are living, you know, it can be in King Edward and you draw that two kilometer circle, a lot of that stuff is SkyTrain and hospital and restaurants and destinations and stuff like that. And so that determines like the things you can do, you know, at two kilometer, that's a, kind of a pretty chill walk. You're never ever going to have that full circle of two kilometer of things filled in Burke Mountain because it's, you know, we have limits on where you can build. You can't, you know, you're not going to be cutting into the forest too much more, I hope. Whereas at King Ed and Canby, that in that circle, like we could replace some of those single family homes with with those kinds of key destinations that you want. It could get better and better. And so Tawasin is a similar example to, to Burke Mountain where a lot of the things on all the sides are water or protected ALR farmland. Even even comparing, let's say comparing Tawasin to Newton. You know, if you're in Newton, which is in Surrey, kind of a, a somewhat central part of Surrey, you're close to a lot of things, but you're also far from a lot of things. But at least you can go north, you can go west, you can go east, you can go south. And there's things in all those directions. But in, in Tawasin, you go south, there's the border, you go east, there's water. You know, you go west, there's a few houses and then water. <laughs> and then you go north and there's a whole lot of ALR before you get to the tunnel and then more highway and then you get to stuff. So yeah, centrality plays a very underestimated role in, in kind of where people should go. 
One thing I think people often say is, well, you know, our infrastructure can't keep up with it. And, you know, where's everyone going to park? And all these added people, it's just going to add a lot of congestion. So from a housing and from a transportation lens, what do you say to that? Yeah, it's, that's a really good point. Even the, the transportation engineering field thinks that if you add housing or if you add stores, it'll just generate a fixed number of you add a restaurant, it's gonna ha- there's going to be this many cars driving to it each day. And then someone does a traffic study to understand how is that going to impact the roads around that restaurant. But we've known for decades that that's not how it works. The, the number of cars is less proportional to how many things there are and more proportional to like you as a person. If you have access to all these things around you easily by foot, by bike or by transit, then those are the modes that you're going to use. It's really... Mm. It's really more about kind of bouquet of options that you have, you know, like, (laughs) how do I say it? Like, like if you if you add another Ikea in a farm field, you probably are going to get exactly the amount of driving that you predict. But, you know, if you imagine putting in a new community center in a part of town that might be underserved by community centers, it may actually reduce the amount of driving because all of a sudden the people in that neighborhood don't have to drive halfway across town. They can just walk to their own community center, spend a lot less time getting there, spend more time with their family, like it's just a win-win-win. But at the end of the day, when we put more housing close together, more restaurants, stores, the things that people like close together, it's going to reduce vehicle use. And, you know, parking is works the exact same way. If you, if you live in a single-family neighborhood that you know, it's literally just one family per house and basement suites are legalized and you start adding these basement suites. Yes, probably some of the people living in those basement suites will end up bringing their cars with them. And so that will generate like a real increase in the cars on the street. But it's an intermediary step. Like it's not the end state. Like right. once you once that density grows and grows and grows, it'll be that much easier to live without a car. And then eventually you know, cars per person will will start to plummet. Right. So would it be fair to say that, you know, some of our very low density single family areas, we add like some density, like a laneway, like a basement suite, you get a interim effect of increased cars and increased kind of congestion. But then you kind of reach a point where the neighborhood becomes filled with more things that it kind of has the opposite effect of it's taking people out of cars because there's so many options. There's like you say, the bouquet of options that are walkable that you're actually reducing those vehicle trips. Yeah. As long as zoning is keeping up with like as long as those things are allowed so many neighborhoods in this region don't allow corner stores they don't allow like banks and stuff like that the things that you need to go to don't allow jobs Um, and so in a kind of a functioning urban development scheme where those things will come like as soon as a person at the headquarters at Best Buy determines oh you know like there's enough people there's officially enough people in like Killarney for a new Best Buy then 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 they'll put one there but they can't it's not allowed right now Um, yes that's true so as long as our region is adaptable to those kinds of changes then you know parking need not be an issue and of course I mean I don't need to tell you but like to prioritize parking over addressing this like crippling housing crisis is is just the most yeah yeah it's just so short-sighted It's yep. again, it's like putting this aesthetic dream of what things were like in 1997 ahead of your own children and grandchildren's 
ability to live comfortably in the future. (laughs) It really just emphasizes again that we need less restrictive zoning so that we can add density in these areas, but not only just to add housing, also to allow flexibility to add the corner stores, to add the Best Buy wherever Best Buy thinks has a demand for that neighborhood. And so maybe the response to people who say, oh, we shouldn't add housing here because, you know, it'll be like a negative impact to infrastructure and it'll add traffic and cars is a response of maybe if we added the density, it could reduce some of the car trips that you currently have by adding some of the amenities that you currently have to drive to, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think a lot of Because change is hard Mm. and it's scary. And especially for people who might have been living here, you know, for like 50, 60 years. So the more that we can appeal to the self-interest of people, of thinking like, hey, I used to have to drive to the community center, but if there's enough people here, I could get that coffee shop that I normally drive to. I can get that community center that I, you know, normally drive to. That's something that I think people don't often think about. They just kind of think about a burden to their existing infrastructure, their existing transportation and amenities. Yeah. I'm gonna I have another stat that's gonna blow your mind. Yeah. You, please you do. ready? Yeah. Traffic volumes on the Lionsgate and the Second Narrows Bridges, which are the only ways to get to the North Shore by car, peaked twenty years ago. And so Really? Yeah. Yeah. Twenty years ago is when they peaked. And so what what happened? Right. Because there are more people on the North Shore. There are more people in Squamish and Whistler that are further up the North Shore. They have more stuff over there now. They have so much more that they can just do by staying on the North Shore. So they don't need to constantly drive in. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Like, yeah, uh, this is this is how it plays out. And certainly seems like traffic seems really bad on Highway 1 and and through the core. But but if you just look at the numbers counted by the province, like a pretty reliable source. Yeah, it, it's it's been pretty much flat over the last 20 years. I mean, part of it, too, is that you can only fit so many cars through that pipe. You know, like there's only three lanes on one and six on the other. And like, that's it. That's how many cars you get to get through. Uh, but but yeah, like there's there's so much more at people's disposal on the North Shore, whether it's at Park Royal or on Lonsdale. Interesting. Because the moment you said that, immediately my brain thought, like, what transit upgrade did they do that allowed this to happen? (laughs) And not think like, hey, it's because they added stuff there and people didn't have to drive down. But that's a great example. I love that. Yeah. I mean, and transit definitely plays a role. Like, it's kind of the release valve. There are definitely more trips to and from the North Shore, like the rest of the region. And it's just that buses are like bus ridership is really a lot higher than it was. Even bus ridership to West Van, which always surprises me when I look at the the ridership growth on the 250, which is kind of the main route to West Van. It's doing really well. The, the 240, you know, is like an articulated bus now. That's the one that goes to North Van from downtown. So yeah, so so those buses are are playing a big role and that gives you a bit of a clue as to how that kind of growth can happen. It's like an it's a bit of an island the North Shore, so it kind of helps you to kind of isolate how things play out, but like yeah, there's all this building on the North Shore and and it doesn't generate more traffic on the bridges or at least it it doesn't cause like a societal collapse having this additional density on the North Shore because all of a sudden people are like I mean, I don't know what's a good example. There's a movie theater at at Park Royal now, so they're like, "Oh, I don't, I don't have to drive into the core to go to a movie theater." 
all these amenities that that they might have had to go elsewhere for. They have their own. Yeah, yeah. I think Ampleside is probably a pretty good example. It's like a really cool hip spot now that people go to. I think just a couple of weeks ago, there was like an outdoor concert or something there. Yeah. So this idea that like, yeah, if you lived in the North Shore, like that could be your go-to spot instead of having to drive into the city or downtown or something, right? Maybe to wrap up, do you want to tell us a little bit about the project that you're working on for people who maybe want to learn more about what they can do to advocate for better public transportation because it also is such a important aspect of urban development and density and just our livelihoods in Vancouver. Yeah, sure. I, I've i been working at TransLink for 10 years. I just left recently. Um, uh, I had a great time there and I was really focused on making buses faster more reliable and just generally a better option for people. There's so many people that rely on buses in this region. You know, more than half of the people that use TransLink services are on a bus as opposed to a train or a ferry. So I am starting a nonprofit, a group that is going to organize transit riders. And it's really exciting. It's something that a lot of other cities have, like an organized group that speaks up for the riders. And, and so I think it was a, it's a piece that's been missing from our landscape here. And in my experience, what I've seen is that a lot of the barriers to good transit, those exist because the voice of transit riders aren't heard at the municipal level, at the provincial level. We need a big group of transit riders that's willing to raise their voice and talk to council, talk to their MLA, those kinds of things. And so, yeah, that's what I'm going to be working on. Excellent. I'm so excited. I think that's a really important thing. And much like housing, there's a lot of people who don't have their voices heard. And I think that this is something that a lot of people, myself included, can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Helen, for having me on. This has been so much fun. I love talking about this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Excellent. I do too. I really enjoyed my conversation with Dennis. And I learned so much through it. And I hope that you did as well. He highlighted a few key themes that I want to emphasize as we ponder the relationship among housing, density, and infrastructure. Number one is stuff begets stuff. And that's a good thing. The more things we have, like the density of homes, the more likely that it will allow for retail shops and conveniences to appear. And therefore, the higher probability we can rely on walking instead of driving. More People also makes a clear case for more public funding for services like public transportation upgrades or new amenities like community centers. And as that happens, we need policies that are flexible enough to allow for the consequential increase of amenities, businesses, and infrastructure. And this relates back to the policy reform we discussed in episode two. The traditional way of looking at infrastructure is biased towards negative impacts. Instead, we should acknowledge that while more people require more services, this also brings us benefits. We should welcome new homes and buildings, especially in the middle of our region, because of my next point. Number two is centrality. As a region, and as most regions should, we need to limit the bounds of our urban development. This not only helps us preserve more of our important natural areas, 
but also it increases the efficiency of our built environment. And as Dennis points out, the best places to add density are in the middle of our urban areas because it's most likely to be connected to everything that residents need. Third, not all services are created equally. Infrastructure and density, and therefore people, aren't linear relationships. Sometimes, more people require a little bit more infrastructure, and others, a lot more. Sometimes adding new homes does result in more cars, until the neighborhood reaches a density that permits for more stores, amenities, and options that reduce the need for driving. It's a work in progress. And finally, when you add a political layer, often the topics that are most talked about aren't the things that have the most impact. For example, improving bus service can help a lot of people, but it isn't always the most exciting issue to discuss. I hope that my conversation with Dennis has shed light on some of the complexities in the relationship between people and public infrastructure. Though adding density can cause some to be wary, it's clear that these are challenges we can overcome. And it's also evident that density can add a lot of positive things. The next time you see or read about housing and infrastructure, I challenge you to think more deeply about the impacts and to question whether it's an issue that will move us closer to more livable and sustainable communities. On our next development, we're going to explore an important component that has been lacking to date, truth and reconciliation. What does this mean for the future of our built environment? So much of our relationship with land and home ownership has been rooted in colonial and settler values. These are also values which have shaped land use regulations, marginalizing and preventing many Indigenous and First Nations peoples from their ability to create thriving communities. What can we do to address these past harms and reapproach our built environment to create more equitable communities? We'll also discuss what we can learn from the new Indigenous-led developments. I hope you'll join me for the conversation. You've been listening to Urbanism Vancouver, the podcast dedicated to bettering our built environment. Be sure to follow us on your listening platform of choice so you don't miss our future releases. I'm Helen Loy. Thanks for listening. This podcast series was independently funded and produced by myself and Erin Johnson. Visit us at urbanismvancouver.com. <laughs>